All right, good morning. Um, it is good to be with you guys. My name is Will. Uh, this morning, my, our six-year-old Florence came and uh, asked me about how the sermon prep had gone and what I hoped uh, would happen this morning. And you know, we talked about that, and then she said, well, what if the pastor didn't tell everyone that he wasn't going to be here? And when they saw you, they were like, oh, no. So if that's you, I'm sorry um, this morning. Uh, but thankfully, we still have the same God, we have the same Spirit, uh, and we have the same Word. So we do turn to the Word this morning, Psalm 6. I know you guys have been spending this summer in the Psalms, which is a great book to spend time in. Over the past couple Sundays, you guys have had a psalm from the evening and a psalm for the morning. And today's psalm is one of the first ones that comes from a really dark place, a really difficult place. Uh, the psalmist David comes in the midst of despair. So hopefully you've already turned to Psalm 6. Uh, I'll probably go ahead and read it out loud again. It's a very short psalm. Um, but it is a psalm that helps us think through how do we approach God in the midst of despair? When things aren't good, when things are difficult, when, as you just heard read to you, uh, your, your pillow is drenched with tears. One of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, talks about the Christian hope uh, being one that is able to endure anything. Other hopes are fragile. Um, that doesn't mean that these hopes are bad. It just means that they're fragile, they're breakable. Uh, they're not lasting. They're to be enjoyed as the good gifts they are, family, friends, jobs, hobbies, like Bob Dylan. But they're fragile. Uh, they can easily change. They can break. They can be taken away from us. Uh, and they're susceptible to time and circumstances. And so what Keller, if you ever hear him speak, constantly tries to get across is um, to see these things for what they are, to see the fragile nature of them. And hopefully when we do that, we turn to God and his word and look toward our eternal hope. And I think that's what the Apostle Peter's getting at in 1 Peter when he says that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And that's, I think, what Psalm 6 is saying this morning. And so my hope is, after the initial shock of seeing that I am not your pastor, is that each of us this morning would be turned toward that eternal hope, that we would leave this morning in Psalm 6 uh, looking toward that which is eternal, that which is not fragile, that which is not breakable, that which lasts. So let's look at Psalm 6 together and, and think through how do we approach God when times are difficult, when we're in the midst of despair, which I know some people may be in this morning. If you're not in that this morning, if I'm not in that, we probably will be at some point. So how do we approach God? Psalm 6 says this, this is the writer David, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye washes, wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So the first point 
of the text is the psalmist situation. The psalmist situation. The psalmist is in despair, and that's clear from the psalm, which we read twice now. Um, but the very first thing you can say about this despair in this situation is that David the psalmist sees his despair, his circumstances, as a result of the Lord's discipline. So this is a result of the Lord's discipline, and you can see that in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So just a single verse, but it really sets the stage for the entire psalm. This isn't meaningless suffering. These aren't random chance circumstances. David sees these things as directed from the Lord in order to rebuke him. Now, how does David know this is the Lord's doing? He doesn't tell us that. I like to think that he doesn't have some special revelation from God about this, as if God audibly spoke and said, this is, hey, this is my rebuke. And maybe he did. We don't know that. What I think happened is that David looks at his circumstances and does some internal self-examination and connects those dots for himself, which I think is instructive for us, and which is honestly very different from, I think, how most of us would view our circumstances. I mean, if we're in difficulty, if we're in despair, is one of our first thoughts to think, is this from the Lord? And what is the Lord trying to accomplish in my life through this? That's what David does. And David sees his life through the lens of his spiritual life. I think for a lot of us, we probably compartmentalize those things, right? Even think of this morning, we're at church. This is our spiritual time. And after church, we move on to our normal Sundays, which may consist of naps or Netflix or whatever it is that you do on a Sunday. No football on. Baseball, for people that love it, which apparently is not a lot of Americans these days. But David sees his life, his circumstances, through the lens of his spiritual life. And so he naturally sees that this is from the hand of the Lord. Now, I do want to caution us. We do need to be careful here, don't we? We don't want to make everything a boogeyman, to make everything an act of discipline. But I do think it's instructive when we find ourselves in situations of despair to question and do self-examination. And to me, that's what's so helpful in this. David doesn't take his circumstances and throw them on to something spiritual. He doesn't make someone his spiritual enemy necessarily. What he does is he sees himself and his circumstances and his enemies, and that causes him to turn inside and to question. And ultimately, which I think is the most helpful thing in the psalm, he goes to the Lord. These circumstances cause him to turn to the Lord so David sees his circumstances first and foremost as something that is direct divine discipline. The other thing I think that's important to note is that David vividly describes his circumstances, which there's no other word to use, and I'll probably use a lot this morning, which is despair. I mean, look at the vivid language that David uses to describe his circumstances. Be gracious to me, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. And that's vivid language. And to me, it's really significant that David doesn't simply say he's having difficulty. He doesn't just summarize it in one sentence and say he's in depression, he's in despair. He vividly describes that. And notice who he describes that too. He describes it to the Lord. He takes these depictions and these descriptions to the Lord. 
which I think is an important thing, and there's two things I want to say here about this. I think first, as a church, this is a good reminder that despair is not something that's alien to us or something that marks us as a bad Christian. Despair is something that's going to come for each one of us. Happy Sunday. And it's really instructive to me that even here, one of the strongest of the people of God, David, struggles with despair. And obviously, it's okay to bring that to the Lord. This made it into the holy canon of Scripture. So God's okay with this. It's okay to confess, just as we just did corporately. It's okay to confess that we're not doing well. It's okay to confess that we're struggling. It's important to note that we can do that to the Lord. Now, secondly, this psalm doesn't just encourage us to take it to the Lord. It encourages us to take it to the church. The book of Psalms was a songbook for God's people to be used in corporate worship. So not only is it okay to bring our despair to the Lord, it's okay to bring our despair to one another, which again is significant. It's not easy. And I'm not saying I'm good at that. My wife and I have had many conversations about sharing how we're feeling and doing. And I have the spiritual gift of saying I'm okay and acting okay when I'm not. I don't know if anybody has that. You can appear like everything's okay. She's different. She wears her emotions on her sleeves. Me, I can just smile and think terrible things at my heart, which is not a good thing. But this psalm encourages us to bring our despair and to use it in worship, which is kind of odd. David brings his despair um, not in order to manipulate, not in order to play victim. He isn't blackmailing or blame shifting. He's coming as he is, which is how we tell people to come to Christ. Come as you are. I think it's also instructive because David knows that the Lord and the people of God care. The people of God care. I guess my question on this point, and I, again, I don't know much about Sojourn necessarily. I don't see your small groups. I don't see maybe when you have lunch together after church. But are y'all as a church, as a body of believers, working to be honest with one another, even when you're in despair? Or... Is it easy, and this is probably the case for most of American Christianity, to just be nominally, nominally Christian among community? And what I mean by that, it's easy to come to a service to give the minimum effort, you know, to, to talk during the time of invitation and, and peace, and then really not share how you're feeling. Or to go, and again, this is somewhere where I, I thrive in as an introvert, to go to a small group and never really share about anything in your life. When someone asks, how can I pray for you? Just to say, oh, you know, the normal things. This psalm reminds us we can bring our despair to the Lord and we can bring it to one another. And be reminded of the vivid descriptions. My tears are flooding my bed, my pillow. My eyes are wasting away with grief. This psalm encourages us to share our hurts with others, with other believers. And again, my question is, is that happening? Now, I would say, as a church, we can grow in this, can't we? I think we can grow in having courage to do this, taking that step of faith, but also in grace 
when we don't respond well. If you were to share the, your despair to me, I may not respond in the proper way. I may kind of be kind of shocked. And I bet a lot of us may end up not knowing what to say. That's where I think we can grow in extending grace to one another. But we can also grow in extending that grace to those that are struggling, can't we? I think one of the things that challenges me, and this is very simple, is are we attempting to do these things? Are we taking these risks for the sake of community? Are we taking these risks in our small groups, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships? Or are we just guarding ourselves? And if that's the case, Sojourn, what is that keeping you from as a, as a church community? David doesn't seem to have that issue. David lays out all of his stuff for all of the Christian world to see years and years later. One more quick note about the psalmist situation. So he's in despair. He sees it as an act of discipline from the Lord. He also sees it as a life and death situation. I get this from verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? So the stakes are high. And David sees his life as possibly about to end. He even brings up Sheol, a place of death. This is a phrase that David and others in the Old Testament use as a phrase for the afterlife, the house of the dead. A place of gloom, a place that's often connected when you read Proverbs with the wicked. And this is a place that David fully expects that he may end up almost immediately. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? David accepts, expects that he may be in Sheol almost immediately. So David's circumstances are as bleak as you can get. And you can even catch the overtones of spiritual death here. If David goes to Sheol, he loses this intimacy with God. So David isn't just afraid of physical death. He's afraid of losing this intimacy he has with the Lord. In Sheol, there is no worship, there is no remembrance, there is no praise. And so this leads to David's approach. So we have the psalmist's circumstances. He's in despair, he's in discipline, he's at the point of death, he's almost in Sheol. And this leads the psalmist David to approach the Lord. And so this is where the psalm kind of turns, um, which is interesting. You know, if you were in David's circumstances, how would you approach the Lord? How would I approach the Lord? If I was in despair, David approaches the Lord with confidence, which is fascinating. When you see confidence in the text, this guy who's like, I'm about to be in Sheol, please save me. Even in the midst of his despair, even in the midst of his tears, even in the midst of his depression, he is rock-solid confident in the Lord, which is fascinating. David approaches confidently, and it made me think about confidence in general. I'm not a super confident person, but I bet there's people that are confident in this room today. Um, one thing I think about with confidence is winking. Any winkers in the room? What a weird thing to say in a sermon. <laughs> But there's people that wink, hello, isn't there? You know, I don't know what your form of greeting is, if you're a handshaker, fist bumper, awkward thumbs up, dadder, that's my go-to without realizing it. Hey. Um, but then there's people that wink, and it's just so cool, isn't it? Because if you wink and it's bad, it's, it's over. 
especially if you're like in that dating relationship and you do a bad wink. Whew. Lord, have mercy on your soul. Um, I'm not a winker. Uh, Rebecca would laugh at me when I try to wink. She winks, actually, which I think she's a confident person. We balance each other out in those respects. Um, David may have been a winker. I feel like if you slay Goliath, like, man, you, yeah, you probably can wink um, with the best of them. But here, David in the text is not confident in himself or what he has. His confidence comes from the Lord. I think of Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I mean, think about, again, the circumstances. David approaches a holy God in despair, in discipline. He's approaching someone that he perceives as angry with him. And yet, in the midst of that, David is confident in the Lord. It's a confidence that's infectious. It's confidence that I want. David fully expects the Lord to listen, to care, to act. And again, it's not confidence because it's anything that David has done. It's a confidence in who God is and what he has done. He knows the Lord doesn't change. He knows the Lord is a merciful and gracious God. And he knows the Lord gives steadfast love toward those who needs it. It's a confidence based on intimacy. David has an intimacy with the Lord that even when things are bad, he can approach him with confidence. Where do I see that in the text? You see that in the fact that David questions the Lord. How long, O Lord? You can see this in the fact that David requests things of God. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. He feels the audacity to ask the Lord for things. You can see the intimacy in that he points things out to God as if God doesn't know it. In Sheol, there is no remembrance of you. God would say, oh, thank you, David. I didn't, didn't know that. I mean, that shows intimacy that David can say those things. And last but not least, I mean, David shares all of his stuff with God. Which, when you think about it, who in our lives sees us at our worst? Who do we allow to see those? How, who do we allow to see us at our worst? Usually those that we're most intimate with or comfortable with. Our spouses are our only good friends, you know. We don't go to the grocery store when we're in despair, when we're crying into our pillow. That's only for those that we're most intimate with. And so David goes to the Lord in this moment, not as someone who he knows from a distance, but who he knows intimately. And so one thing I would encourage us to think through this morning's sojourn is do we have that same kind of in, uh, intimacy with the Lord and confidence in the Lord? to approach him, even when the chips have fallen down in a bad way, even when we're in the midst of despair, even when we feel like we're one step away from death and the Lord is angry with us, that doesn't stop the confidence of David. And so this appeal, this confidence, this approach leads to an appeal. So David's circumstances, the psalmist's circumstances, we have the psalmist's approach, now we have the psalmist's appeal. And he really makes an appeal to three areas. I won't spend a ton of time on each of these. But as we have mentioned already, his first appeal is to his circumstances. David makes an appeal to the Lord based on his circumstances. His tears are flooding his, his pillow. He's appealing the Lord to not forsake him to, and to save him. And again, he spends the majority of the psalm on just describing his despair, which is instructive. He does this because he knows the Lord cares. The Lord wants to hear, and the Lord will act. So he makes an appeal to God based on his circumstances. 
He makes an appeal based on God's character. This comes from verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. David knows the character of the Lord. He knows who he is. And he brings that up to the Lord in this psalm. He knows that in the midst of despair that God will act, God will save him. He's a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. So he makes an appeal based on circumstances, an appeal based on character. And the third appeal, and this is maybe the most interesting one to me, he makes an appeal to worship. Lord, save me for worship's sake. This comes from verse 5. In death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? It makes logical sense that he would appeal to his circumstances and to God's character. Those seem like givens, don't they? But worship, when we're in despair and we approach God with confidence, is one of the reasons that we approach him because of worship. It is for David. And I think what David is doing is he's not solely trying to manipulate God. He's not trying to say, you know, in Sheol there is no remembrance of, of you. He's, I think, elevating the role of worship in our daily lives. If we need God because of our circumstances, like we need our daily bread, if we need God because of who he is and his character, then another part of what it means to be human and made in the image of God is this idea of worship, this idea of communing with God, this idea of this relational intimacy, which is, I think, what David is elevating here. David is elevating worship because that is vital to what it means to be human. You and I were made to worship God, to connect with God. And to be in Sheol, to be apart from God, is to be disconnected from that relational intimacy that we are made for. Worship isn't something that is for Sundays only. Worship isn't something that we can take or leave. Worship isn't, well, I don't know this song, I don't have to sing. Worship isn't, I'm in despair, I don't have to praise God. The psalm flies in the face of that. The book of Job flies in the face of that. Worship is something that you and I are to be walking in and that we were made for. In Dante's Inferno, um, one of the reasons that the souls are tormented in, in the Inferno and Hell is that they lose their ability to reason. So when Dante first describes Hell, which I'm sure you guys have all read many times, that would be awesome if you have, actually. Um, one, one of the reasons why they're in torment is they've lost their ability to moral reason. Dante tells us they've lost the good of intellect. And so they're, you, know, you and I made in the image of God, we can morally reason together. That's what sets us apart from the animals. We're not driven by our passions. We're like God. We can recognize good and evil. And these people that enter into the inferno lose that ability, which in Dante's mind, in the classical world, that would have been terrible. And it's interesting that, you know, I agree with Dante on that, but David would say if we are to depart from God and be in Sheol, one thing that we lose that makes us truly human is our ability to worship. And David doesn't want to lose that. Again, he's not afraid of physical death. He's, he's afraid of losing that intimacy with God that he's tasted. He's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And the idea of being disconnected from that is unfathomable to him. Which should kind of question and make us evaluate our own worship lives this morning, shouldn't it? The reading responses that you do as a church, 
Are you just paying lip service to those things? Or are you engaging with your hearts? The songs that we sing, our time in Scripture, are we seeking to worship in spirit and truth as God's people? Or are we just going through the motions? Are we leaning toward nominalism, which I mentioned earlier? One of the, the things that has really convicted me and stuck out to me from this psalm is the role of worship in our lives. Despair shouldn't stop us from worshiping. In fact, it should push us toward God. Are we worshiping sojourn this morning? If not, the good news is you and I can. If you're on autopilot this morning, you can flip that switch immediately and go to the Lord. And so David makes this appeal. He appeals to his circumstances. He appeals to God's character. He appeals to worship. And so then he just, he waits. But in the psalm, he doesn't wait long. He doesn't wait for the Lord to respond. There isn't a long deliberation. David doesn't have to wait for a jury to decide. He just essentially announces victory in the psalm. He announces that God has granted his appeal. And this is the fourth point. David gives a command to his enemies. Those enemies that have him on the verge of death, he's got one foot in Sheol. In the span of like two verses, David announces victory over these enemies. Which I don't know if, if you're like me, that kind of gives me comfort. David kind of seems like he's a mess in this psalm. He's weeping, he's crying, he's in despair, but he's also supremely confident in the Lord. Here this is this man after God's own heart who seems emotionally kind of all over the place. And in the same psalm where he can say he's so close to death, he's so close to being cut off from the Lord, he can also say, I know the Lord has heard my prayer and accepted it. I know the Lord has heard my weeping and he's heard my plea, and I know my enemies are going to be defeated. So David gives this command to his enemies. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Again, I know that's a simple verse, but man, it's amazing that David can go from despair, or still be in despair, but still announce victory, and give this boastful command to his enemies. He speaks this out loud to them. Rebecca and I have this inside joke, well, maybe it's more on my end, that she can uh, speak things into existence. So like if one of our kids isn't feeling well, in my brain I'm like, oh, it's, it's just a cough, it's nothing, it's random. And she's like, no, 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 it's, it's COVID. And boom, that's what it is. Or, oh, no, no, his stomach, Lewis's stomach hurts. It's probably just nothing. Nope. She knows, mommy knows it's a stomach bug. And like two hours later, boom, that's exactly what it is. And so I, I'll joke with her and say, don't speak this into existence. Like, don't make it happen. As if she has that a power and ability to do that. Really, she's just more observant than I am. And she has those, that motherly intuition that clearly a dad doesn't have. Like, she just knows. She can lean on those instincts. Or maybe I'm just hopeful and I hate stomach bugs. David, in this psalm, seems to speak prophetically this into existence. It hasn't happened yet. Again, he's in despair, but he knows his enemies are going to fail. And that, again, goes back to his confidence, his confidence in who the Lord is. David isn't willing into existence this victory. He just knows who God is, and he trusts God, and he believes God. I mean, look how David grounds his hope 
in this verse. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for, there's the ground, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. It's the Lord. And what is more, I like that David says the Lord has heard the sound of his weeping. It's as if that's enough to, to spur the Lord into action. The Lord hears the cries of his children, and boom, he's that protective parent. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. He continues on, the Lord has heard my plea. And finally, and maybe most beautifully, verse 9, the Lord accepts my prayer. That's pretty audacious, isn't it, to say that? I don't think I have the confidence to do that, to speak on behalf of the Lord. Anybody hate it when people speak on behalf of you as if they have your same authority? That's what David is doing here. The Lord accepts my prayer. How can David say this? The guy that's almost in Sheol, the guy that's in despair, how can David have the confidence to say this? Is he putting words in God's mouth, or is he just really maybe just taking God's word and believing it? The Lord accepts my prayer. I do wonder in the text if David is saying this as much to himself as to his enemies. You know, presumably his enemies aren't around when he's writing this psalm down. He's saying this to himself. He's preaching the gospel to himself. So how can David say this? How can he say definitively, the Lord accepts my prayer? Well, here's where Christ comes in. David's prayer is accepted because of the work of Christ. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died a brutal death in the place of David and in the place of you and me. David trusts in God's character. We as believers see more clearly than David because we see Christ. I don't think David had some weird superior foreknowledge and saw, oh yeah, there's me, this person named Jesus. He just trusts God's promises. He trusts God's word that a Savior is coming. But you and I have the full scriptures. We see Christ clearly. And so how much more should we have that confidence that believer, when you're in despair, the Lord hears your prayer and he accepts it. David, who is in such anguish, is just a shadow compared to the true suffering servant. And I thought of Isaiah 53. For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and, he, and we esteemed him not. Surely he, Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to a slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And I'll skip ahead to the last verse. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. That's why, that's the key verse. Christ, the suffering servant, can make intercess, intercession for you and me, for David years and years ago, and for you and me today. 
So just like David can trust that his prayer is accepted, you and I can trust. We can take it to the bank because we can look to Jesus Christ, the true suffering servant. I even think of Hebrews as well. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, the writer says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's what David does in Psalm 6. That's what he, the writer of Hebrews tells you and I as believers to do today. And David, last point, leaves with an encouragement to self. A command to his enemies, yes, he announces victory, but he leaves with an encouragement to self. Verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I think, again, that's for David, more than the enemies who probably can't hear this. He's encouraging himself. He's speaking truth to himself. He's reminding himself of what's going to happen. And to say this one more time, it's just a fascinating dichotomy. This guy who's in despair, still in despair, still flooding his bed with tears, can say a command to his enemies and an encouragement to self. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, obviously, this hasn't happened yet. It's a future hope. But this is the future hope that David has. The Lord will be true to his servant. The Lord will be true to his word. And it made me think about, you know, to close, the hope that we have as believers in Christ, the hope we just sang about. It's not going to be long until Christ returns. It made me think of 1 Corinthians 15. Our future hope as believers that we can encourage ourselves with. Behold, I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? So the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that should motivate us. That should spur us forward in Christ. We should have that same forward-looking hope that the psalmist does. One day we will triumph over our enemies. One day death will be finally defeated. One day despair will be no more. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be immovable, be steadfast, be abounding in the work of the Lord, that in the Lord your, neighbor, your labor is not in vain. This is our future hope. So if you're here this morning and you're in the midst of suffering, turn to that eternal hope. That doesn't mean that your suffering is just going to go away. It doesn't for David. But in the midst of his despair, he clings tightly to that hope in the Lord. And he has the confidence to trust that the Lord is good, that all things are working out toward his good. 
and you can have that same hope. Again, it's not going to be a pretty hope. It may be through a lot of ugly crying, but that hope is there. Take hold of it. If you're here this morning and you're not in suffering, which may be most of us, my desire is that this psalm would teach us and prepare us for that suffering that's going to come. Are we reaching out toward that eternal hope? Or are we just trusting in fragile hopes? Again, good things that are going to break. And when we find ourselves in circumstances that are despair and suffering, we'll know where to go. We'll know who to trust because we're already trusting and turning to him today. And a final word for those that are here this morning and may not be believers. Maybe this sermon could help you to examine what is it you're trusting in and why you're not turning to the Lord. Maybe it's going to remind you that even the best of things in this world are fragile. They're fading. They're things that moth kill and rust destroys. And my hope would be, unbeliever, if that's you, that you would turn to Christ. Turn to the one who is going to swallow up death and victory, the one who's already done that through the cross. The one who is true, the one who is unchanging, the one who is lasting. Appeal to the Lord like the psalmist to save on behalf of his steadfast love. So, again, I'm not your pastor. Hopefully you're not still in shock. But man, if there's anything to take away from Psalm 6 this morning, my hope is that for each one of us, we can approach the Lord, even in the worst of circumstances, with confidence, appealing to God's character and to worship that we can be confident enough to announce victory to our enemies and encourage ourselves in the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you've not left us as orphans, that you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. I thank you that there are psalms that are written from despair to encourage us as we walk through despair, but also to prepare us for the times of suffering that will come. I thank you that you're a God who hears the cries of your children, who hear our pleas and who accepts our prayers. God, we thank you for that. We're not worthy of that. Thank you that in your goodness you have extended that to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would leave here with a renewed confidence in you and a renewed confidence in your son, that suffering servant who has taken everything on our behalf. The sins of the world were laid upon his shoulders. You struck him. It was the will of God to crush him. And we're grateful for that. So Lord, help us in these final moments as we take your supper and as we sing songs that we would worship in spirit and truth. Help us not to be tempted to go on autopilot. Help us not to hide things from one another, but help us to worship in spirit and truth. And I pray you'd bless this time together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.